quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us and a very happy first day of spring to you all. And we're certainly springing into the very latest on Chinese President Xi Jinping's first visit to Moscow since Russia invaded Ukraine. What may come from his talks with President Putin just ahead? But first, the action on global markets after another historic weekend of deals and decision making aimed at shoring up confidence in the financial system. The key development... A de facto shotgun wedding, let's call it that, between Swiss banking giants UBS and its beleaguered competitor Credit Suisse. The cost, some three and a quarter billion dollars equivalent in stock. UBS will also take a hit for a further five billion dollars worth of losses if required. The Swiss National Bank will also provide some 100 billion dollars worth of liquidity assistance again if required. Now, the initial response from stock investors across European banks, including, let's be clear, UBS shareholders too, is um, concerned. I'd call it that, although admittedly shares are way off their worst levels earlier on in the session. UBS down around 3% as we speak and other European majors down around 1.5%. That stock for debt holders I think it's shock. Now, the reason for the nervousness there is tied to how this deal treats debt holders versus shareholders. Now, just to be clear, normally shareholders are the first in line to take a hit when a bank gets into trouble. However, in this deal, some value for shareholders is being preserved, while $17 billion worth of debt is effectively being wiped out. Now, you're going to hear a lot of talk about something called 81 debt. That's a debt tier that was established after the financial crisis to be a buffer in case a bank got into distress in the future. The problem now is that this sends a warning shot across the bow of other investors in this kind of debt that perhaps it's riskier than they first thought. So you have to watch the debt markets now rather than perhaps the, sh- the stock markets. Now, in another move reminiscent of the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve and other global central banks announced measures to boost the availability of dollars. The message, you can keep lending to customers and businesses. We're not going to let you run out of cash and there's no need to hoard money. That's the message. Now, after all this, US futures moving higher after earlier weakness. Green arrows, as you can see there, for Europe too, though there's still nervousness in US regional banks with shares of First Republic set to resume their slide in early trading today after yet another debt downgrade. You know what I think of the rating agencies, so I won't elaborate further. Now, more on all of that in just a moment. But first, another weekend, another emergency rescue. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, we sort of called this, but even I was surprised surprised at the speed upon which this happened. Just talk us through the contours of the deal. 
Yeah, this was rapid. And as ever with any kind of takeover, there are winners and losers, but it feels mm. like there are a lot of losers on this one. So whether we look at the share price of Credit Suisse and essentially what UBS is buying this for, a 60% discount on where shares closed on Friday, and they were at a big low, of course, for Credit Suisse. That is kind of where we're actually seeing Credit Suisse shares trade right now, about 60% down on the day. Then there is the loss, of course, relating to that for Saudi National Bank, Qatar Investment Authority. Think of all those massive shareholders who've lost billions of dollars on that. And then your point on the bondholders, the 81 bonds, these convertible bonds, that has sent a shock through the market because you would expect shareholders to be, to be punished first. And actually, it's interesting because we've had European banking regulators come out this morning and saying, while they welcome this takeover, they welcome the news, if it were to happen... The European bank, they would be punishing the shareholders before uh, the bondholders. So an interesting development there. We will keep an eye on prices uh, on 81 bonds, though, because I think we're already seeing some impact. Um, There was also a lot of support. So yesterday in the many press conferences we had, it was very clear by multiple um, authorities and regulators that this is not a bailout. However, there is a lot of government support for this takeover. It makes you wonder how much cajoling maybe UBS needed to get to this point. For instance, the Swiss Central Bank will provide a loan of over $100 billion to boost liquidity. And once UBS, if it needs to assume just over $5 billion of losses, the federal government will give it a guarantee in the amount of $9.7 billion. So there was a bit of a bail-in. Arguably, there's a little bit of a bail-out and a giant takeover, a lot for us all to absorb on a Monday morning. Yeah, and I think cajoling is a great um, a great word to use here. Cajoling on the side of, of Credit Suisse, which I think given the broader environment really had no choice, but also on the part of UBS, because now they have to digest, absorb, decide what to do about this monster business. And it raises all sorts of separate questions. Something that did catch my eye when I was pouring over the details beyond the initial hit, which was the debt holders, as you've mentioned, was this idea that they were paying around... Um, a 60% discount compared to the value of Credit Suisse on Friday. But to your point, you top up that $3 billion with the $5 billion potential hit that UBS takes. And that brings you back to the the $8 billion that, that Credit Suisse was worth on Friday. The cost savings, though, Anna, mm-hmm. talk to me about the potential cost savings for UBS relative to that $8 billion sum that we're talking about, which is why I mentioned it. This was a really key part of the earnings, not the earnings call, sorry, the call with UBS executives late last night, uh, which I was on, which is why I'm a little bit tired today. But um, $8 billion of saving a year by 2027. And this will mean, of course, huge job cuts. And my heart goes out to people that work for Credit Suisse who are probably worried about their position today. Um, there will be a lot of synergies. They didn't have an answer to all of the many questions. For instance, what happens to the whole plan to spin off Credit Suisse's investment bank to Credit Suisse First Boston. I think that looks like it's on the rock. Certainly, they are looking to reduce and slim down any investment bank operations and bring it into line with their culture of risk management. Um, there was a lot of excitement, though. It was a very short presentation in terms of slides, just the one slide, very succinct. Uh, but a lot of excitement for UBS about wealth management and what Credit Suisse will bring to its portfolio. Combined, they will have $5 trillion worth of invested assets. UBS was looking to expand in LATAM and Asia, and this will certainly help it to do that. But a lot of cost savings along the way. And one big question that I don't think we have the answer to really, but the domestic banking operations, which of course are quite profitable uh, in terms of Credit Suisse, what that will bring to UBS and, and to competition, I think, domestically. Julia? Yeah. 
Great point. For some, you can talk about synergies. For other, you can talk about consolidation and um, a lack of competition perhaps going forward because these are the two biggest banks in the country. So huge questions. We've got a shareholder in, in Credit Suisse, the Ethos Foundation, coming up later on the show to talk about all of these things. And the fact, of course, we should mention shareholders didn't get a choice. They were told what was going to happen here. They, they weren't allowed to vote. Um, Anna, great job. Thank you so much and well done for being on that call. Anna Stewart there. And uh, let's bring in Richard Quest now. Uh, Richard, much to discuss. We can talk about Credit Suisse and the decisions in Switzerland. We can also talk about, again, a repeat of what we saw in 2008, where all the central banks come in and provide liquidity, even before yeah. perhaps they worry. Um, I think the situation here is always you don't know what you don't know until you find out. And that is exactly the problem at the moment. Mm. There was always the fear, you know this, Julia, well, that the rising interest rates would expose weaknesses in the plumbing system. But nobody really knew where or how far. A good example, of course, was Liz Truss's uh, mini budget that wasn't, which exposed huge weakness in portfolio insurance and the pensions industry overnight in one fell swoop. Well, these rising interest rates have now exposed weaknesses in those banks that were long bond heavy and weren't risk managed properly. Interestingly, the New York Times, of course, over the weekend had the story about how SVB was warned several times by the Fed about its risk management position. And so, Julia, what I think you're seeing today is a sort of a torch, a flashlight, as the Americans would say, being shone into all corners of the financial system and plumbing, working out where are the leaks, where's the problems, what's next? I guess the difference that we can make, and it's a huge one, and there are many differences between today and 2008, for the United States in particular, we're not in recession. The challenge back in 2008 was the torchlights were flashing, but even when you found sort of what you were looking for in terms of toxic assets, you didn't understand yeah. the value of those toxic assets. You didn't understand what the exactly. inter-exposure between banks was. And that's why everybody was panicking. I don't want to lend to this person. I don't know what my exposure is to this person. And that created a freezing effect in the plumbing system. What I see the central banks doing here now around the world is saying, look, don't worry. However much money you need, however concerned you are, the money's going to be there. And this is a very different feel to me, even with, to your point, and I agree with you, sort of the separate crises that we're seeing. Totally different situation. You nailed it there. And Credit Suisse is a perfect example of this difference because the potential of counterparty risk in Credit Suisse was absolutely enormous. Who would want to be on the receiving end of their overnight money and their overnight paper or indeed any of their paper? So the the, the central banks moving in and then the coordinated swap activity, which basically says as many dollars, euros, yen as you like, stuff your gills with them. We can always get more. That shows they've learned the lesson, not just of Lehman, but of course, the Bank of England with Liz Truss. Get in there fast. Flood the system with money, stand behind even when you're going to lose and then work out who pays the bill afterwards. Yeah. Lesson learned. Richard. 
thank you so much for joining us. Uh, until sir. next time. Until, <laughs> until next time, next Julia. Time. There's going to be something. Uh, there's going to be something somewhere that's going to be sort of an alarming, and, and somebody's going to say, "Well, we don't need to worry about that until they do." But at the moment, this is not 2008 all over again. At least as I see it. Do you know one parallel I can see, and I'm going to get yelled at, Richard, and there's not enough time for the two of us to rant about this. The role of the ratings agencies. Where were the rating Ah. agencies once again? We'll see. All the regulators. Look, we haven't got time for that. My dinner's waiting for me at (laughs) 10 past 10. I've only got an hour. (laughs) We'll reconvene. Richard, get to that dinner. Thank you. Okay, on to a possible legal showdown looming for Donald Trump. The former U.S. president says he expects to be arrested tomorrow, so that's Tuesday, amid the investigation into an alleged scheme to pay hush money to adult film star Stormy Daniels. The former legal advisor to Trump's attorney Michael Cohen is set to appear before the New York grand jury today. Kara Scannell is following the case for us in New York. Kara, um, it was the president, the former president himself, that suggested uh, that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday this week. I believe the campaign is raising money off the back of it. What do we know about whether or not he is indeed going to be arrested? Well, Julia, as far as we know, no decision has been made yet at this point, but the grand jury is still active. And Bob Costello, who was once an attorney for Michael Cohen back when Michael Cohen and Trump were on the same side, he is expected to appear before the grand jury this afternoon. A source tells me that Costello had reached out to both the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and lawyers for former President Trump, saying that he had information that would contradict Michael Cohen's testimony. Now, Cohen appeared twice before the grand jury last week. As you recall, he pleaded guilty several years ago to federal charges. And at the time, he said that he made these payments in coordination with and at the direction of former President Trump. Now, Costello has turned over hundreds of documents, including emails, back from that time period when he was working with Cohen because Cohen had waived attorney-client privilege. And we're told that Trump's lawyers sent a letter to the DA's office asking for them to put Costello on the stand because they said Costello would say that Cohen told him at the time that he was aware of no illegal activity by Donald Trump. So that's some testimony that Trump's team wants to get before the grand jury today. Now, Michael Cohen was on MSNBC over the weekend and said that he would be appearing today in court. The DA's office asked him to be on standby. He wasn't sure if that was to be a rebuttal witness before the grand jury or just to answer additional questions by the prosecutors. You know, there's a lot of expectation and um, some tension about, you know, when an indictment could possibly come down when a decision will be made on whether to pursue one. And we're starting to see some of the security around the courthouse change this morning. Our team observed NYPD officers installing security cameras on the top of the lights in this vicinity, um, all part of the enhanced security protection and concerning concerns that everyone has with the potential indictment of a former president and his public appearance in the courthouse uh, just next to me. Julia? Yes. Fireworks all round. We shall see. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for that. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but straight ahead. Shotgun Weddings, Harmonious Honeymoon. We'll discuss the future for that emergency merger between Credit Suisse and UBS with a Credit Suisse shareholder. After this, plenty more to come.
Welcome back to First Move and another weekend of extraordinary action by central bankers and government officials and bankers to shore up the global banking sector. Switzerland's biggest bank, UBS, agreeing to buy its ailing rival Credit Suisse in an emergency deal worth some $3.2 billion. Credit Suisse shareholders will be largely wiped out, although shares will retain a fraction of their value. The same cannot be said for owners of $17 billion worth of additional tier one bonds, as we've discussed. Investors in this riskier class of bank debt will lose everything. Joining us now is Vincent Kaufman. He's the CEO of Ethos Foundation, a holder of more than 3% of Credit Suisse stock. Ethos is composed of 246 Swiss pensions and public utility foundations. Um, great to have you on the show, sir. Um, today's a very tough day. Talk me through how you're feeling on behalf of those you invest for. Yeah, so first of all, just a precision, we ESOS Foundation is not the holder itself, it's more the Swiss pension fund uh, who are members of ESOS, who, which actually delegates uh, the voting rights often to uh, ESOS, who will act as a proxy advisor, um, so we don't have directly, hopefully, this three person, but the Swiss pension fund actually lost a lot of money uh, during the last week uh, and during the last years with, with Credit Suisse, so we have repeatedly uh, ask for different measure, different uh, strategic orientation. So it's a it's a it's a sentiment of uh, um, yeah, a big disappointment because we're convinced something better should have happened. But now we have to 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 look at this. Uh, I would say more positively and say that the uh, Swiss government uh, had some information and had to act this way to certainly avoid. Uh, uh, a second Lehman Brothers case and 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 a comparable uh, financial crisis as in 2008. So, uh, hopefully, the measure will uh, stabilize the situation. So, the way you're looking at this now is you're saying this was basically the only choice. That's a feeling we have, uh, knowing that we left on Friday with a Credit Suisse with about. Uh, Seven billion market cap, and now we have an offer uh, at uh, three billion, valuing the company at three billion, which is unbelievable and unimaginable uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago. So that would certainly mean that the amount of outflows and liquidity problem was huge, and um, yeah, a lot of things we didn't know, uh, and that um, yeah, that pushed uh, the federal council, the Swiss government, to act this way, and also to. Amend the, the, the law, the merger and acquisition law, uh, and superpass the voting power of shareholders. This is a never seen in Switzerland and in the governance uh, field. Usually, as a shareholder, we have a say on such an important uh, merger on both sides, UBS and Credit Suisse. Here, uh, the government uh, made an ordinance which actually uh, allow uh, the operation to go without shareholder approvals. It's a never seen. Do you think it ever happens again, Vincent? Because that's my worry a little bit that we have a precedent now, right. uh, and in terms in terms of governance, I mean this 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 is quite catastrophic for for shareholder rights and investor protection. So hopefully it's a it's a one off, uh, but it still creates a precedent. So we will really uh, fight against any regulation which would go in this direction because for shareholders it's so important to have a, a say on such on such deals. Yeah, you don't want this enshrined in law. Also, it raises questions about um, about your purpose, to, to your point about clarifying the role that you play here too. I want to ask you, 
one of the big questions that's being asked at this moment is why shareholders were at least given some protections and those that the creditors that would normally be given greater protection than than shareholders, the debt holders have been completely wiped out. Vincent, what do you make of that? Because this is also setting a strong precedent too, which has broader consequences than just Switzerland. You're right. It's uh, also something uh, never seen. It's I think it's the first time we have a kind of a triggering event on the cocoa, but usually the triggering event is a conversion of those debt instruments into equities. That was my understanding. So really when I discovered the possibility to, to write it off completely, uh, I was shocked myself and uh, uh, we were never th- that fan of those uh, kind of buffer capital. For instance, we have always pushed for uh, strong uh, and real uh, shareholder equity. We still believe a lot of banks are um, also the, the legislation uh, push for higher capital. But I think uh, the how how financial products are now more and more toxic, short term and, and volatile. Uh, we believe we should have much more higher uh, core capital. And those buffer instruments was always a little bit. Uh, uh, for us, not the the best solution. But here, uh, it's you're right. It's uh, it's certainly that was possible within the prospectus of this in- instrument. So I I I assume the holders of those instruments should have been aware that such a, a triggering event was possible. But I don't know. I I really don't know. But that's also something which is creating a, a precedent which is uh, totally uh, not welcome. Yeah, possible, but questionable, I think, in this case. And and we're certainly seeing that. Yeah. Vincent, what about legal action? What we had in the midst of what was um, broader global volatility among the banks was an announcement from Credit Suisse that there was uh, perhaps questionable practices or material differences in some of the information. They announced what was effectively a loss for 2022 that wiped out a decade of profits. Do you want legal action, whether it's management, former management, over decisions that have been made now for a number of years at this bank? Is that some way perhaps to get some value back for these shareholders Hmm. that have taken a hit? Yeah, there is two ways to to do something here with the Swiss legislation. Uh, One way we believe would be very difficult uh, we have to to to, to file a claim uh, potentially. We uh, we have to analyze if it's possible, but it's for as you say poor management. And here uh, the law is not really in favor of investor, really protective for 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 board of directors. Uh, on the information side, and we have also to look at what information uh, was available at the board level and management level, and what they did communicate to the market. And that's of course something where. Uh, Potentially, investor may may have been uh, um, yeah uh, misled by by the communication of the bank, but we still have to 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 prove it as investor, and that would be very very difficult uh, based on the Swiss legislation. Uh, also, on the Swiss legislation, the the, the the class action style of that you have in the US is is not that known. So I know some uh, action are being opened in the in in the US, but uh, from the first information we had this morning with our lawyers, it's very, very unlikely and difficult to get something back uh, with, the, with the, the Swiss legislation, at least from the management. Uh, and those people who were certainly overpaid during many years 
we also have to look at those clawback mechanisms that were in, implemented into the variable compensation structure of those manager, um, especially the one in the in the in the in the year uh, where all this scandal happened. But here again, we the the the, the proof is not easy to 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 have. But we will look at it. Um, but again, the Swiss legislation is quite on the side of companies not that uh, on the side of uh, investor protection. Yeah, and by investors in this case, we're talking about pension funds. We're talking about pensioners, people who have saved for their retirement or are trying to save for their retirement. And I think we always have to um, remind people what we, what we mean in this case when we're talking about at least some of the investors. Um, very quickly, Vincent, you were initially pushing for the Swiss business to be spun off because that is profitable. Um, will you still push for that? Or are you accepting back to the beginning of our conversation that, quite frankly, there's very little say now, if any, than what happens? Yeah, I think that's something we, we, we still have to evaluate because from the Swiss market perspective, we clearly have a failure of the too-big-to-fail legislation. The too-big-to-fail legislation was clearly say that we should reinvent the Swiss business. You know, we are small countries and with these two, two big banks, we really had to have safety mechanism. So one of the safety mechanisms was to have those uh, Swiss division independent and being uh, listed on the market quite quickly. It was too late last, last week. Clearly, uh, the Swiss division alone would, would, not, would not have been able to survive. That's why we were asking that before. Now, uh, what we would expect from the Swiss authority, because they pushed uh, UBS to, to make this deal, but I think they could also have, in terms of anti-competitive law, uh, because here, on a normal case, the anti-competition law would have never accepted such a deal. Here, uh, the protection of creditor uh, overpassed the, um, the antitrust legislation. But I think the antitrust legislation could still make a kind of a condition to say, um, look, you keep it, UBS can keep the Swiss division of Credit Suisse quite untouched. So UBS yeah. could work really on synergies with the international wealth management, work on the investment bank, make the, the things they have. They have a lot of money from the Confederation not to make the restructuring, not 9 billion just alone to, for the restructuration. So they can work on this and keep the Swiss business quite both independent uh, and then potentially in two years, uh, give a dividend in kind to UBS shareholders as a spin-off and a, 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 an IPO of the Swiss division. This is something we will ask to the Swiss authority because, of course, a UBS board might be reluctant because, of course, they don't want to create a, a, a next competitor again as a, a competitor. But for the Swiss economy, for the client of those banks, uh, the Swiss pension fund typically are clients of those banks. We need this competition. Yeah. It's too dangerous. And also for the systemic risk of Switzerland, it's too, I, I, I'm firmly believing it's too dangerous to keep uh, those two banks into one. Yeah, competition is what keeps prices down for borrowers and, and supports the real economy. Um, Vincent, great to get your take. Thank you so much. Vincent Kaufman there, the CEO of the Ethos Foundation. Welcome back to First Move in a meeting in Moscow. Chinese leader Xi Jinping arriving in Russia earlier today. The start of a three-day state visit for talks with President Vladimir Putin. President Putin also made a surprise appearance in the Russian-occupied city of Mariupol, Ukraine, over the weekend. You're seeing pictures from that visit there. In the meantime, a senior White House official says the Biden administration is watching Xi's visit, quote, very, very closely 
as it warns against any calls for a ceasefire. Well, Ripley joins us now on this. Well, the broader message, I think, from uh, Xi Jinping choosing this as his first state visit, having achieved his unprecedented third term, clear for all to see. I mean, it's clear his priorities uh, lie with with Vladimir Putin, despite um, the war crimes charges, the condemnation from the West, the sanctions that China is helping Russia evade. And a lot of people might be scratching their heads. You know, why would Xi Jinping with a much larger economy and a much more important financial relationship, business relationship, trade relationship with the United States and the West still continue to prioritize his connection with a man who is increasingly becoming a global pariah? Uh, And the answer is is pretty simple. Uh, Economics is one thing for Xi, but it's kind of secondary to ideology. And when it comes to ideology, Putin and Xi are on the same page. They both want to see a return uh, to this authoritarian, uh, you know, world order. They, They basically, not even a return, they want to see the U.S.-led world order that's been in place since the end of World War II uh, broken up. They, they want to weaken the influence of the United States in the West culturally, economically, certainly militarily. And so this you know, trip, which they are touting as uh, you know, a journey of friendship, cooperation and peace, behind closed doors, behind all of the lavish ceremonies and the, you know, the champagne toasts, they're going to be having some serious conversations Putin is going to ask Xi Jinping most likely for weapons and ammunition, which China has. If China provides that overtly, they face uh, huge, huge uh, penalties potentially from the West. The United States has warned as such. So I wouldn't necessarily expect a big announcement on that front. But we certainly need to watch very closely, Julia, the trade data and see what's actually moving from China into uh, Russia uh, for potential use in Ukraine. Uh, You know, China doesn't uh, necessarily enforce sanctions against North Korea either. And they've been launching a barrage of missiles this year. So this authoritarian alliance uh, is rock solid, to use a term that, you know, that uh, the United States and the West have often used uh, you know, politically as well. And now Chinese diplomats uh, are also using it. They are, they are, they are getting together, uh, friends, no matter what the other one does, uh, it seems, and, and that certainly does raise uh, concerns for Ukraine. This this Chinese peace plan, you know, could 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 China actually ask Ukraine to just like give up what Russia has taken uh, and, and just reward Russia for illegally uh, stealing their land and, and, and butchering their people? Uh, that's what the 12 point plan certainly seems to imply, Julia. And uh, and and. Still, of course, no conversation between President Xi and President Zelensky, even as he's there in Moscow meeting with Putin. So uh, a lot to uh, watch. Probably it won't be so overt on the surface, but um, it'll be very interesting after this meeting to see where this whole situation goes. Yeah, well, Ripley, much to discuss, certainly. Thank you so much for that. And who better to discuss it with than Ian Bremer, president and founder of G Zero Media and Eurasia Group. Ian, always great to get you on the show. It feels like a, a renormalization of the Xi-Putin relationship. And I guess you could argue at this moment, from Xi's perspective at least, he's got very little to lose in terms of his deteriorating relationship with the United States. Why not do this? Well, uh, China does not want a, a new Cold War with the Americans, and they don't want to see more sanctions from the Americans. So, I mean, there's still a floor on that relationship that could well be tested uh, after the next few days. 
Uh, but but you're absolutely right. This is a renormalization. If you go back, Julia, I think you and I were chatting just after uh, the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting uh, when Putin and Xi Jinping saw each other in Central Asia back in September. And at that point, it was a much more frosty, a much more formal meeting. And Putin had to admit in his comments that Xi Jinping had some concerns about the Russian war in Ukraine. This is a very different story. This is a three-day state visit, starting with the dinner, more conversations going on tomorrow. And on the back of Putin having traveled to occupied Ukraine, literally hours ago, Xi Jinping would have been briefed in advance of that. This is Putin showing that he is not giving up any of the territory uh, that he has taken away from the Ukrainians and does not expect Xi Jinping to be in any position or interest in pushing him to do so. That's a serious problem uh, for the Ukrainians, of course. It means that they have to be successful in their counteroffensive because otherwise the level of political pressure on them is going up. I mean, two days before that, visit, of course, too. You had the International Criminal Court um, issuing an arrest warrant for President Putin as well. So to have Xi Jinping in his country um, yes. post that as well is, a, is also, I think, an important signal. What comes yes. then of this meeting? As you point out, the 12-point plan simply doesn't work from, from Ukraine's perspective. The relationship between President Putin and Xi Jinping is very different from the relationship between Xi Jinping and President Zelensky, even if there is the potential for some kind of conversation at least a weapon well they haven't even they tense. haven't even announced yet julia when that conversation between mm. xi jinping and zelensky is going to be and that's just a video at some point to be determined uh wh while xi jinping is there with putin so no one is pretending that the chinese president is an honest broker here um, i think that what will come out at a minimum is the Chinese president and Putin will call for negotiations with the Ukrainians. Um, and they may well intimate that we should have a ceasefire uh, with the Russians occupying present territory. Now I'll say well, an interesting thing is that the Russians over the last week have been talking to Europeans at a senior level and saying that if um, a, a negotiations process that the Chinese are willing to broker isn't accepted by NATO, isn't accepted by Zelensky, that the Chinese have said that they're willing to start providing weapons directly to the Russians. Now, I think that that is overstated. I think that's Russian bluster. I don't believe the Chinese will ha would have made that commitment given the sanctions it would engender from the US and Europe. But it's interesting the level of confidence that the Russians are projecting with the Chinese president coming to see them for three days right now. You, you, you couldn't be more right about how important this visit is. It is the geopolitically most significant summit that we have seen since this invasion has started. It is by far the most problematic. The peace brokering for Xi Jinping, though, is, is far more broad. And it's not just about the, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, which is quite fascinating to me. It's, it's an operation elsewhere in an area where the West and the United States have, have failed to achieve so far. And I'm, I'm talking about bringing the Saudis and the Iranians together to the table for the first time. What, in, in, in seven years? It's something that the West didn't achieve. And, and Xi Jinping, the global diplomat, perhaps we can call him in this part, did. Sure, sure. Uh, he's played the role of principal diplomat in the Middle East. If you look at the most significant peace deals that have been brokered over the past 
decade, you've got Obama and the Iranian nuclear deal. You've got Trump and the Abraham Accords. And now you've got Xi Jinping uh, and Iran, Saudi Arabia. Something looks very, very different here. And apparently uh, it was the Chinese getting the Iranians to commit not to send further weapons to Yemen that made the Saudis willing to spend to actually get the deal done. Uh, the White House thinks this is a big deal. The Europeans think it's a big deal. But it's very interesting. All this comes in the backdrop of a President Biden who has described the world as a battle between democracies and autocracies. Now, that may not sound so controversial uh, when you and I are discussing it on CNN, uh, but if you're in the Middle East where there aren't exactly many democracies right now, um, what what you hear Biden saying is this part of the world is not aligned with us, not relevant to us long term. The Chinese are saying something very different. We need you. We want you. We want to engage with you. We're inviting you all to Beijing. Xi Jinping is intending to host a summit of all the GCC, the Gulf leaders and the Iranians later in the year. Um, the Americans don't even talk to the Iranians. The relationship with the Saudis problematic. By the way, this also comes on the back of Saudi Arabia and Qatar getting their shares wiped out by the Swiss government over the last few days. That was an investment that they were making in Europe that was meant to be a prestige investment. Uh, the Chinese are also quietly telling the Gulf states, you can, you can trust and believe in China and your investments in China over the longer term. It's deeply problematic uh, what the geopolitics of the region are looking like right now. Yeah, and we're just showing pictures, actually. Actually, it's, a, it's, a, it's an actual picture of that meeting between Xi Jinping and uh, President Vladimir Putin on your screen there. Any further details of that conversation, we will bring them to you. Um, Ian, the other thing that connects many of these leaders in, in that region, the Chinese, of course, uh, President Putin is the fact that they get to hang around for a long time and um, US presidents at least face elections every four years. Um, I wanted to get your take on President Trump and his announcement that he believes he will be arrested this week. And, and a lot of commentators coming out and saying this will provide sympathy. He's already campaign fundraising off the back of this. Do you think he gets arrested this week? And, and what are the implications First, I think it's appropriate that it's the third thing we're talking about, not the first. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact that he puts out his posts in all caps screaming at you um, does imply that we should take them a little less seriously um, than other uh, posts that we hear these days. He's not on Twitter. Why Elon Musk is getting a lot more, you know, sort of play, a lot more attention uh, and, and daily engagement in social media than Trump does. I think that's significant. But still, um, most Republicans that I know uh, believe that Trump is not just the front runner, but increasingly likely to get the nomination. And I think that the Europeans, others that engage with the Americans on the global stage, aren't yet really prepared for that, what it would mean. Certainly, if you think about Russia, Ukraine, um, Trump would have a very radically different position than the Biden administration or the Republican leadership has had over the course of the past year. Um, Trump would be calling it if the Chinese are promoting a peace plan, Trump would probably be supporting that peace plan. He's much more aligned with the Chinese position here um, than uh, than the Europeans or the American governments presently are. Uh, this puts a spanner in the ability of the United States to lead a consolidated NATO or G7 or West. Um, and I, I think that that's perhaps the most significant thing that a Trump nomination, if it comes, uh, would be. And yes, uh, the country will be talking more about Trump as we get further into this Republican nomination process and as we see whether he is or is not 
uh, detained uh, tomorrow. Uh, his ability to drive headlines continues uh, to surprise compared to his level of, uh, of, of capabilities as president. Uh, Ian, can I just keep you there for two seconds? We're just going to listen in because um, we can now see images of um, President Xi and President Putin speaking. I'm just going to see if we can get a sense of what they're saying. Uh,并已经取得了非常明显的积极的成果。我依然不断说，马克思和其他的领导下，中国会呃进一步呃向前发展，并一定会完成您所部署的重要的国家发展目标。Символично, что ровно 10 лет назад мы с вами где встречались, вы совершили свой первый визит в качестве председателя Китайской Народной Республики в России. Ian, I think you're there. How's your Russian or your Chinese? I'm hoping you're better than mine. My Chinese is non-existent. But my, no, my Russian, I, I caught what he was saying in Russian. Okay. Um, and and this, was, uh, th this was talking about their relationship, the first visit that they had 10 years ago, uh, the importance of Chinese power and influence, the honor uh, that the relationship bestows on both countries. Um, this, was, this was very, you know, sort of, I would say, symbolically charged, uh, very strongly friendly uh, and powerful language. Uh, from Putin saying that uh, this 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 feels to me very much like the language that was used a year ago, February 4th, by Putin in Beijing, talking about these two leaders as friends without global limits. We've heard nothing like this from Putin during the war since. Uh, there's no question that, that that is what he is sharing uh, with the Russian stage and with the global stage today. Yeah, I'm just watching even just their body languages. I know you can't see this. The, the two chairs positioned either side of a fireplace. Very serious face, to your point about the words, thank you, that President Putin was speaking there. It's interesting to watch President Xi because he's, he's smiling. It's a soft smile, but he's smiling throughout this. Just the, the interaction between these two leaders, very different, even on the surface here. Uh, uh, even if we couldn't understand what... what the individuals were saying, um, very different from Xi's meetings with Western leaders. It's very evident. Julia, I think we want to recognize that this comes on the back of Xi Jinping's public statements a couple of weeks ago that Tough. were unprecedented in their direct hostility towards the United States. Th those two speeches what we're seeing right now from Xi Jinping and the announcement we saw two weeks ago are bookends um, of a, a, a shift in alignment. Uh, a China that believes that the United States is increasingly implacably hostile towards it and therefore wants to ensure that the Russians do not lose this war in Ukraine. Um, and that, of course, means that they need to not just stop NATO um, from continuing to escalate, as they see it, uh, the war on the ground. But they also need to bolster and shore up Putin's position on the international stage more broadly. And Xi Jinping is doing his damnedest uh, to put that into place right now in Moscow. Mm. Ian, always fantastic to have you on the show. Also fantastic to have a Russian speaker, which I didn't realize. <laughs> Thank you so much. President and founder of G Zero Media and the Eurasia Group and author of The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Great to have you on, as always. All right, up next is President Macron about to meet his Paris match. 
The French government faces no confidence votes as anger rages over the pension reform changes. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and a major test for French President Emmanuel Macron in the coming hours as his government faces no confidence votes over its decision to raise the retirement age without a parliamentary vote. Anger again spilled onto the streets of France over the weekend. You're looking at some of those scenes from Paris. Now, despite the outrage, Macron's government is likely to survive. Melissa Bell is in Paris. Melissa, but at what cost? At what cost? This has gone on now for so many weeks of not just popular discontent, Julia, but of course those fractious arguments within the French Parliament uh, that have led us to this point with this uh, no-confidence vote coming tonight. Now, the parliamentary arithmetic means that it is 287 votes that would be needed for it to pass, uh, forcing uh, Elisabeth Bonn, the Prime Minister's government, to fall. As things stand uh, tonight, that looks unlikely to happen, although not impossible, Julia. It is more what happens beyond Parliament that we're keeping an eye on this afternoon, because as we've seen these last few days, ever since the government announced on Thursday that it would be forcing through this particularly unpopular uh, and controversial uh, attempt at pension reform without a vote on Thursday using a parliamentary device that allows it to be pushed through, we've seen those spontaneous and unplanned uh, and uh, not permitted illegal uh, protests taking place uh, spontaneously in Paris and in other French uh, cities. We expect those to continue later today, even though any kind of public gatherings have now been banned around the Place de la Concorde and the Champs-Élysées, right here from where I'm speaking to you. Uh, Still, the protesters are determined to make their voices heard well beyond the parliamentary Walls, And, of course, this picks up off something that we've been seeing these last few weeks and covering here on CNN, Julia, which is uh, the trade unions that are now preparing their ninth day of mass protests on strike on Thursday. They'd begun at the start of the year ever since Emmanuel Macron announced that he was determined to get this retirement age uh, pushed through, raised from 62 to 64. They've held uh, these protests, these strike actions. There will be more on Thursday when much of France will be paralyzed again. Still, and despite that, uh, a large proportion of the French public determined uh, to remain against uh, this particular move, against uh, the government's proposal and behind what the trade unions and the protesters have been doing these last few weeks. So a remarkable uh, sort of uh, uh, arm wrestle between the government and really the wider public and the parliament as well, Julia. Yeah, the majority of the public. Uh, I understand the fury. It's just how do you pay for 20 or 30 years of retirement? That's the answer they need to uh, come up with. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that. Welcome back to a fast and furious first move today. U.S. stocks are also up and running this Monday, and it's a big start to the trading week. But shares of major U.S. banks as well, as many regional banks now are on the rise. Look at the Dow there actually managing to eke out gains of 1%. All of this coming after the emergency sale of Credit Suisse to UBS and the move by global central banks to ensure access to U.S. dollars and make sure that these banks keep lending and feel secure. Another positive development, too, U.S. officials telling CNN that deposits at some of the U.S.'s small and mid-sized banks have stabilized in recent days with outflows either slowing, stopping or in some cases even reversing. And that's going to be the key to broader stability, I think, in the U.S. markets, just people feeling secure enough, particularly those uninsured deposits, to leave their money where it is. Now, that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.